You know, when you're as great as I am, it's really hard to be humble. And I'm so glad you're laughing because I had no idea how that line was going to go. But sadly, pride is part of the human condition. It comes all too easily to us, and whether we care to admit it or not, we all have moments like that when we think we're all that. And the truth is, we're not exactly proud of those moments. They usually come with regret or embarrassment. And the irony is this, that this whole business of pride, it does, it comes so easily to us, and yet at the same time we are wired for relationships. And so we constantly have these two things battling inside of us. We have this tendency towards pride, and we have this need for relationships, and they are constantly doing battle. So pride gets in the way of our relationship with God. Pride gets in the way of the relationship that we have with our husbands and wives. Pride gets in the way of our relationship with our children, our family, our friends. Pride gets in the way of everything. And so Paul is writing to the church in Philippi because pride has begun to get in the way of the relationships of the church at Philippi. And we can't kid ourselves because, like they, we are as susceptible to this issue of pride as they were. Now, I don't know, I think in the bulletin it says that this is an interactive sermon. Right? Yeah. So, I'm going to ask you a question. What do you suppose is the antidote to pride? Anyone, shout out. Humility, great, yes. And so Paul's emphasis in this chapter is on humility because he knows as we do that the best way to put pride in its place is to practice humility. And unlike pride, humility doesn't come quite so naturally to us. So we do have to practice it. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to address the issue of humility and the critical role that it plays for us corporately as the church, living in unity and striving as the Philippians did to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And what we'll do is we'll just move along through Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 through chapter 2, verse 18. So let's pray. Heavenly Father... May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Paul begins this message by encouraging the Philippians to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ as well as the means to do it. And as we read along, I want you to think about how Paul is instructing the Philippians to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then I'm going to quiz you. So, chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. 
For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Okay. So the first question we really have to answer is, what does it mean to live in a manner worthy of the gospel? <clears throat> to live in a manner worthy of the gospel means to live in a way that affirms or confirms the claims of Christ. That is to say that he was God incarnate, that he came to this earth, and that through his death and resurrection we are saved. Now, what is the key to living in a manner worthy of the gospel? Anyone? Anyone? First Bueller's Day off? <laughs> Unity, yes. Striving together as one, as it says in verse 27, for the faith of the gospel. Being united as the church is the key to living in a manner worthy of the gospel. And this is terribly important, these two things, living in a manner worthy of the gospel, that is, showing the world who Christ is all about, and living in unity. These two things are incredibly important because this was actually the nature of Christ's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane before he died. John 17, let's take a quick look at this. John 17, verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone, that is, the disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that's us, cause, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that, effect, that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given, oh, and listen, Christ just said this, right? So of course it's terribly important, but he doesn't say it once. Remember, this is the night before he is to be crucified. So anything that he says is going to be of incredible importance, dire importance. And he says it again. Starting in verse 22. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, cause, so that they may be brought to complete unity, effect. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Do you see how vital this connection is between the church's unity and its witness to the world, living in a manner worthy of the gospel? Paul is asking the Philippians to strive together, unified as one for the sake of the gospel, for that which Christ has placed them there, to be lights, witnesses of the good news of Christ, the same reason why we are here today. To be an effective church, we must live in a manner worthy of the gospel. That is to say that we must live as a unified church. Consider the world around us. Think about Terry Terry's prayer, right? The world around us is a mess. And if there was one word that I would describe our country and perhaps even the world around us, it would be division. I don't remember since the 1960s our country being as divided as it is now. People are uncivil. There is a defensiveness, a throwing up of walls. And this is the pride that I was speaking of earlier that destroys relationships. The world outside our doors desperately needs to see something different to give them a sense of hope.
This is the part I was speaking of earlier that destroys relationships. Yes, I already read that part. The need for unity that they have, that we have, for love is crushing. The need that we have for unity and love is crushing where there is so much division and hate. They need to see that God is with us. They need to see that God is in our midst. And unity is the means by which this is accomplished. And the means by which our message of salvation through Christ has any credibility. Therefore, Paul says, in light of the persecution that he and the Philippians were facing, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, and of one mind. <clears throat> okay, so, we are to be united. Got that. But, how are we to be of one spirit and of one mind. In verses 3 and 4, Paul tells us how this is to be achieved, and this is by exercising humility. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. What does Paul mean when he talks about humility here? Paul is saying that we need to act in humility when we value other people above ourselves. He's not promoting a kind of self-deprecating behavior or making other people superior to ourselves. Rather, he is advocating an attitude of deference, of putting others' interests above our own, of putting our preferences aside for the sake of those who may differ from us. Not to focus on ourselves and what suits us, rather to focus on the other person and how we can love them, even as we have been loved by Christ. Don't get me wrong, some people's interests are boring. In fact, even misguided. But being dismissive or argumentative or judgmental about them is when we see the evidence of pride beginning to rear its ugly head. And Paul is encouraging the Philippians to put their self-interests, their pride aside and to consider the interests of others instead. Advice we all benefit from. Now. I will tell you that I was writing this sermon over the summer. And so all of these ideas are swirling around in my head. And Sue and I were just out going for a walk. <clears throat> and I said to her, you know, Sue, I value your interests above my own. And she said back to me, and Bill, I value your interests above my own. And we were just kind of messing around. But the moment was transformative. It was magical. It was truly an expression of love. It was so cool that I want us all to do it. This is part of the interactive sermon, folks. You know how in some churches you have a passing of the peace? You know, people stand up and they say, may the Lord, may the peace of the Lord be with you. And then the other person says, and may the peace of the Lord be also with you, right? So what I'm going to ask us to do this morning is to stand up. And instead of passing the peace, what I want you to say to one another is, I value your interests above my own. And the other person is going to say back to you, and I value your interests above my own. Are you ready? Let's do it. 
Say any reactions to that? Huh? Giddy. Giddy. Oh, nice. That's good. Giddy is good, Joe. Okay. Okay. That's a good point. That's a good point. Um, thank you. And when I'm standing in the back and I'm greeting everyone at the end of the sermon, I really want you to tell me what you thought of this. I really do. Because I'm thinking there's the whole gamut, you know. There's probably people who are like, what? Right? And other people are like, yeah, this is great. This is cool. So <clears throat> I was like the latter. I, I enjoy stuff like this. But anyway, I'd be interested in your feedback. But the point is, it's an exercise in humility is, is the point I'm trying to make. And like I said, I have been doing this since the summer, and it has been hard work. I'm at work, and I say, <clears throat> I value your interests above my own. <laughs> or <clears throat> I'm at the grocery store, you know, and the person has their cart right in the middle of the aisle as they're standing there, and they're trying to figure out, do I want cream of mushroom or do I want cream of chicken? You know, <clears throat> meanwhile, they're blocking the eye, they can't get by. And I'm like, I value your interests above my own. <laughs> or even when I'm driving. Whoa. Right? Okay. It's hard. The point I'm making is that it's hard. And there's two reasons why it's hard. And these are two sides of the same coin. One reason is it's hard is because it goes against our nature. I mean, we're really all about our interests, right? Bottom line. We're about what we want. The other reason why it's hard is because it makes us more like Christ. And that is also very difficult. Okay, so it's hard because it goes against what comes naturally to me. I came across a video by the president of Vision New England, Dr. Charles Galda, who was commenting on submission as it's found in Ephesians 5. And he said that submission to one another, and I believe that what he's talking about when he talks about submission is the same thing that Paul is talking about when he's talking about being humble and considering others' interests above our own. He is saying that this is a spiritual discipline. It's something that requires practice. The point is, it doesn't come naturally to us. It goes against our fallen nature. And if we're going to get good at it, and I'm encouraging us to try to get good at it. We have to practice. 
Practice it at home with your husbands and wives. Practice it at home with your kids. Practice it at home, or excuse me, practice it at work, at the grocery store, or even while you're driving. But try to practice it. It's a hard process to trust, to let go of our interests and put the interests of others ahead of our own. But what do we accomplish? What is waiting for us out there if we practice and if we do this? I will tell you just from my short experience over the last couple of months. I have found that I am able to put other people at ease. That they are more comfortable around me as a result. You know how you feel when you are with someone who is genuinely interested in you and what you're all about. It makes you feel good. It makes you come out. It's, it's an expression of love, really. And so it's great to make other people feel good about being around me. And by the same token, I feel better about myself. It has been a win-win. Now, it's hard. I'm not going to lie. It's hard. But the benefits, the rewards of it are tremendous. They really are. Now, the other side of the coin is that it makes us more like Christ. Dr. Timothy Keller said something I thought was very interesting in his podcast on the Trinity back on August 26th, and I'm loosely quoting here. He said, we are made in the image of God, and so this is our fabric. That is to say that just as the Trinity relates to each other, so we relate to each other. And how does the Trinity relate to each other? They relate to each other by glorifying each other. What does it mean to glorify? It means to serve, to adore, to delight, to bless. Do we do that? Could we, if we considered other people's interests more important than our own? I think we could. Jesus, in his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, gives us a glimpse of how the Trinity works. We see that the Son glorifies the Father, the Father glorifies the Son, and the Spirit glorifies the Father and the Son. Each of the persons of the Trinity do not demand glory, they give it. There is an other orientation within the Godhead. Each of the persons of the Trinity deferring to one another, loving one another, adoring one another. What this means, that giving up our rights, giving up power, serving and caring for others rather than ourselves, seeking the interests of others above ourselves, is at the heart of the Trinity. So we reflect the very nature of God when we do the same. When each one of the Godhead is glorifying the other, they are not diminished by glorifying the other, and neither are we. When we glorify one another, we're not diminished. What we see once again is that the way up is down. The way to influence is to serve. The way to power is to give up power, not to seek your own or promote yourself. Not to demand that other people do what you want. This is what it means to become more like Christ. And again, it's hard and requires practice. Okay, so <clears throat> to sum up where, where we are at this point. So to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, that is to affirm the claims of Christ, we must live together in unity. And the way we live together in unity is by exercising humility. Okay. Paul goes on in verse 5 to elaborate what this humility must look like, and this is the mind-blowing part. 
in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. First of all, can you even imagine what it would be like to have the mindset of Christ? How radical would that be? To think as Christ thinks, what exactly does that mean? Remember, Christ was sent from God from heaven to bring the kingdom of God to earth. Keep in mind that the laws that govern heaven are diametrically opposed to the laws that govern earth. They are counterintuitive to our fallen mindset. To have the mind of Christ is to think in accordance with the laws of heaven. And the laws of heaven are governed by humility because heaven is all about serving. The laws that govern earth are governed by pride. So our natural mindset is to look out for ourselves. To have the mindset of Christ, our thinking must be radically different from what we're used to. The way we think must always go like this. Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last, the servant of all. He who chooses his own life will lose it, but he who dies to himself will find it. To have the mindset of Christ means we must be radically different than we tend to be. Governed not by pride, but by humility. Governed not by the laws of a fallen world, but governed by the laws of the kingdom of God. Paul goes on to tell us just about how radical this mindset of Christ is. Verse 6. Who, being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. <clears throat> Christ, who was God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. What? Can we even wrap our minds around what it would be like to be equal with God? Think about it. And if we were equal with God, what would we do with that? Think about that. What would you do if you were equal with God? Does your mind go immediately to serving others? I don't know about you. Mine doesn't. Consider Adam and Eve, who were not God, but who even at the thought of being like God, saw that the fruit was good for food, for them. Pleasing to the eye, for them. And desirable for gaining wisdom, for them. Who was it all about? Me, me, me. Are we any different? No, no, no. And Jesus, who was God, chose to be a servant. Oh, no, not a servant. Not just a servant, but a servant willing to die. Oh, no, not just a servant willing to die, but willing to die the most excruciating death imaginable, death on a cross. This is the nature of the humility we are to embody, to give up ourselves for one another. Who can do this? It is radical. And what is the result of Christ's humility? Are you ready? Glory. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The idea that there would be glory associated with humility is an oxymoron to us living in a fallen world. Glory equals humility? Eh. 
While we know in our hearts what is true, part of us still doesn't trust it. Could we ever really accomplish anything by putting others ahead of ourselves? Humility seems so powerless, so weak, so counterintuitive, and yet it is the power of God. It is God made strong in our weakness. We know there is a right way, a better way, but it's beyond us. We can't attain it because it is with God and only with God. There is glory in humility because it leads us towards God. The glory of humility comes to us as we identify with Christ, have the mindset of Christ, live as Christ lived, die to ourselves as Christ did. Where there is humility, we find the presence of God. And where we find the presence of God, that is where we find glory, even in this world. Humility establishes us rightly, sets our feet firmly in the spiritual reality that created this world. Pride traps us in this fallen world, in the constant failure of fantasies that never come true. Pride is a prison. Humility is freedom. Pride is a lie. Humility is truth. Pride is sand. Humility is a rock. Pride is guilt. Humility is innocence. Pride is separation. Humility is reconciliation. Pride is destruction. Humility is redemption. Pride is shame. Humility is glory. This is why it is so important that we live humbly, live united, because the world is so desperate to see God. So trapped are they by pride. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. <clears throat> I said that this business of having the mind of Christ was radical. This wouldn't be an issue of fear and trembling if it wasn't radical. It is fear and trembling because it is hard. It is the battle between our fallen selves and our redeemed selves. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation then you will shine among them like stars in the sky, and you will hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even as I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Humility brings unity. And unity enables us to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. When we put ourselves aside and live in humility, God is present with us, unifying us by his Holy Spirit, reflecting his love and grace, and people around us can sense that. Where, does, where do people see humility practiced in this world? Where can people see the kingdom of God in their midst? Who reflects the nature of God through their humility in this world? No one. 
Because no one is empowered by God but the church. But when they see it, is it not a breath of fresh air? A ray of sunshine? Is that not what everyone around us, even we, are pining for? Paul's vision of the church in Philippi is one of stars in the sky, lights in the darkness, a vision which brought joy to his soul. It is a vision that brings joy, joy to those who believe and joy to those who don't. By God's mercy, may we be governed by such a vision so that even pride is disdained and humility embraced. By the power of God, may we be known for our unity. Only then will we reflect the love of God and shine like stars in the sky in a warped and crooked generation. Ah, the glory of humility. Let us pray. Lord, this is hard, but you have not called us to that which is easy. We must die to ourselves so that the world can see that you are with us and that all Christ said was true. For our sake and their salvation, Lord, hear our prayer. Amen. Let's